All right, good morning, Four Oaks. If we don't know each other, I'm Pastor Paul, the lead pastor here at Four Oaks Killarn. Now, in honor of college football season starting next weekend, thank the good Lord, right? And in protest of this brutally hot summer, which will not seem to ever end, the Gilbert family in our house, we have decided we are going to start celebrating the fall season early, right? So we're pulling out all the pumpkins this weekend. Um, we are brewing the pumpkin spice coffee, which, to be honest, is rather hideous, but it does set the mood. And of course, I have my fall colors on right here. I love the fall season. You love the fall season. In addition to all the things going on that Shannon mentioned, we had 40-plus folks yesterday here at Welcome to the Family. It was so great meeting so many new folks who've come to Four Oaks this season. But one of the things I also like about fall is that it can be a real reset for us spiritually. So maybe you're someone who, like, coming out of the summer, you feel a little out of shape, a little flabby spiritually, so to speak. And you're looking for a, a reset to get back into some rhythms and, and patterns and, and spiritual habits. So to help you do that, we are um, kicking off tomorrow morning, uh, bright and early, 8 a.m., our Four Oaks Pastoral Devotionals. We've been taking a hiatus this summer season, and but we're starting those back up tomorrow. So Monday through Friday, um, um, 8 a.m. to about 8.15, we unpack a portion of God's Word. And, and we usually run concurrently with our sermon series, which right now we're starting again, the Book of Romans. And it just unpacks different themes or details or ideas that maybe that we didn't get a chance to spend as much time on here as we would have liked to. And so um, let me just encourage you, this could be a great just um, personal discipline to sort of help jumpstart you spiritually into the fall season. And as I said, we are going to be in the book of Romans, and you can turn to Romans chapter 11, rags to righteous. We've, we've been here now uh, about a year and a half. We took a little highest this summer. But here we are again. Romans 11, let me just introdu introduce it this way, no doubt is one of the most hotly debated, contested chapters in all of the Bible. And the reason so is that it's one that touches not only on ancient biblical world history, but touches on 20th century conflicts and atrocities, modern day religious wars, present day politics and geopolitical realities. You didn't know you were getting all that in Romans 11, did you? Of course, I'm talking about what Paul is going to talk about, which is the future of ethnic Israel, the future of the Jews. Now, this has been Paul's chief concern in Romans 9 through 11. You see, we've seen through the first eight chapters, and let's be honest, they are glorious chapters. They are some of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. It's here that we learn that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone. We've learned that it is not through our works, but through Jesus Christ, the gift of righteousness through faith, that we have salvation, eternal life. We, we, we've heard that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, we, we, we have been, what's been impressed upon us is this idea that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. I mean, this is awesome stuff, folks. This is great stuff. And so here we come to the end of Romans 8. But there's a theological elephant in the room, right? The theological elephant in the room is that the church is comprised almost entirely of Gentiles. And everybody is looking around saying, Paul, 
if the promises of God are so good and so faithful, where are the Jews? You see, despite the fact that Paul was a Jew, and the apostles were Jew, and the foundation of the early church were, was almost entirely Jewish, and of course Jesus himself was a Jew, despite God's chosen people in the Old Testament having a front line seat to the story of redemption, despite having the covenants, the promises, all the advantages, here we are two generations later into the early church, and there are relatively few Jewish people, and it would have evoked a question. And the question was this, Paul, has the word of God failed? Now, you've undoubtedly seen one of these apocalyptic movies. They all have, seem to have the basic same storyline, right? The end of the world is near, isn't it always? Okay. So the asteroid's approaching, the aliens are invading, the subterranean monsters are emerging, uh, zombies are on the loose somewhere on the globe, and it's always the same. Only one person knows about it, right? And this one person is trying to convince everybody else that the end is upon us. They're the sort of the, the, the prophet of warning, the prophet of doom. It's, isn't it interesting always that the hero looks like Brad Pitt it's, it's, and, and, or, or, or Thor or somebody like that, right? Well, that's Paul in Romans 11. He's the prophetic voice. You see, Paul sees very clearly, even if we can't, the imminent disaster that is approaching. Even if we don't see, Paul does see, and he knows if God's word, and this is where it's really pertinent, because you may be asking, Pastor Paul, how, all this, what's happening to Israel, end time stuff, that's, just, I mean, like, I've got bigger and better things to worry about. God will deal with that. I've got a marriage to fix. I've got kids to raise. I've got money to make. I've got stuff to do. Um, what does this have to do with me? Guys, Paul knows, even if we don't, that if we can't trust God's promises, can't trust in his faithfulness to his chosen people, the Jews, how can we trust his promises for us? How can Romans 8 be as good news as we think it is if God has turned his back on his people? And what we've seen in Romans 9 and 10 is Paul has taken great pains to say the word of God has not failed, God is raising up a remnant. God is, is sovereignly saving and choosing a people for himself. That's where Paul's been in Romans 9 and 10. But in Romans 11, there's one last question. And here it is. Paul, is God done with ethnic Israel? Is he finished? Has he, has he turned his back? Are they irrevocably lost? And that's not just a relevant question for the church in Rome. It's a relevant question for us. It's a relevant question for the Jewish people. It's a relevant question for the people of God. And that's where we're going to be the next few weeks. But this morning, Romans 11, 1 through 10. If you can, I'm going to invite you to stand with us as we read God's word together. Verse 1 of Romans 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. 
But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Let's pray. Father, if we can't go to you, where can we go to? Just like Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. And so, Lord, we are asking now that you, as you invite us to the table of your word, that we would find a great feast here. Lord, that you would enrich our hearts, that you would open our eyes, unstop our ears. And Lord, let us see primarily and foundationally you your vision, your glory, your honor, your power, and your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. You know the Apostle Paul, right? He gets right to it in verse 1. He throws down the gauntlet. He addresses the elephant in the room. You know, guy, you have to understand, Paul was a guy, if you hung out with him, you would not, you would not wonder where you were, right? <laughs> he says, I asked him, has God rejected his people? That's the question. And he gives the most emphatic response, absolutely not, by no means. And of course, that's the question before us. Has God cast his people aside? We look around right now, right? Where are the Jews? It's still the same problem. Has he discarded them, walked away, shaken the dust off his robe as he blocked them on social media, which seems to be the equivalent of turning your back on someone, right? And Paul's answer, of course, is absolutely not. And he's going to point to three reasons in this passage. And here they are. First of all, Paul's going to point to the personal. It's an autobiographical testimony of what God's done in his life. He's going to point to the historical, what God has always been doing in the life of ethnic Jews, even up to this day. And finally, the truth that undergirds them all, the theological reality that undergirds it. Now, let me just say this, if you are a Christian struggling to know whether God's word and purposes have failed in your life, if, if that's where you are this morning, you're wrestling through something in your, in your parenting or your marriage or your finances or your health or your job or your vocation or your future or you're looking for a spouse and you wonder, has, has, is God faithful to his word? Please understand that the three things that Paul hangs his hat on to give us for why we can trust God's promises to the Jews are the very same ones that we hang our hat on so that we can trust God's promises to us in Christ. So let's dive in this morning. Personal, and obviously Paul is not a distant, obtuse, disinterested observer to this issue of the Jews, obviously, because what is, look at verse 1, he says, for I myself am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, 
in, in laying these things out, Paul doesn't just say that he is a Jew. He's saying that he's a Jew's Jew, right? He's Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. Paul has the lineage. Um, they would have all known Paul's story. Paul has the pedigree of all Jewish pedigree. And, and people, people knew who Paul was by reputation, right? They knew that on the road to Damascus, Paul was dramatically and irreversibly converted. Jesus appeared to him. He turned Paul's life upside down. He upended his life. And what Paul is saying here, it's very elementary, but it's really profound. Of course God hasn't abandoned the ethnic Jews, Paul says. If he had, I wouldn't be here. See, he's appealing to his personal testimony. And, and, and two things I want us to note about this. First of all, there are people in all of our lives, and I, didn't, I don't ask you if there are, there are for all of us. Who are the people in your life that mentally you've assigned to a category of something like they're too far gone? They're, they're, Pastor Paul, this person is so hardened. Um, you know, I, I've been sharing the gospel with this person their whole life, and they seem just as hardened today as they were the first time I started talking to them. Um, maybe it's a friend, a coworker, someone who, who has lived a debaucherous life. Maybe it's someone who's just an intellectual um, opponent of the gospel. Maybe it's, maybe it's friends you have that have walked away from the faith. Someone somewhere in your life where you're saying, you know, I know God can do anything, and, but you don't say it under your breath, though, but, but not here, right? Okay, like, like, that's just too, that's too much. That's too far. There is no way God can work in that person's life. Again, we may not say that out loud, but that's the attitude of our heart. Let's remember for a minute who Paul was. There was no vociferous, violent opponent to the Christian faith than Paul. He was the Adolf Eichmann of the early church. Who was Eichmann? He was the architect of the Jewish Holocaust. Paul was the architect of the Israelite Holocaust, or Christian Holocaust. He would travel around from city to city, and he was the dude in charge. He was the guy that organized the executions, pulling people out of their homes. They laid their robes at his feet. But when Paul became a Christian... It was so hard, even for the apostles to believe, they were like, oh, that's great, but we don't plan on entertaining Paul anytime soon, okay? Maybe Paul can go over to Antioch or something like that. And it was up to Barnabas, remember, to, to bring Paul back into the company of the apostles. I mean, this was unheard of. This, we, we, you know, what is the modern-day equivalent? Think for a second about the supreme leader of Iran, Ali Khamenei who is, by all accounts, the architect of holy jihad across the globe, who um, at every turn, in partnership with terrorist organizations, seeks to hurt and kill other people. Imagine him, okay, becoming a Christian, right? And then further imagine him inviting all the pastors in the United States over to Tehran for a pastor's conference, okay? We'd all be like... You know, I'm, I'm actually going to Louisville for that pastor's conference. I'm, I'm, not going, I'm not going to Tehran. You know, it's shocking. We laugh because it's like, what, what are we all thinking? No way. That can never happen. That's, that's what happened. 
with the Apostle Paul. So let me just say, church, be encouraged, be faithful, keep on praying, keep on sharing, trust God. No one is beyond the grace of God and the gospel of God. So second lesson, the power of personal testimony. Because we see in the letters of Paul and in Acts, do we not, that Paul was not shy about telling his story, about his conversion, about who he was. And, and let me say this, guys, do you realize it's hard to argue against personal testimony and story, okay? It's very compelling. What were people going to say to Paul when he said, Jesus has changed my life? What are they going to say? Oh, no, he didn't, right? No, no, that's not true, Paul. I don't believe you. It's not arguable. Paul's life was transformed. They could see the change. And let me just say this, church, don't underestimate your story. See, a lot of us, particularly in this day and age, are very tongue-tied, very cowered into fear, timid, because we're afraid we're not going to have all the answers when we start sharing the gospel with that person. We think, you know, it's like, oh, Pastor Paul, you know, I mean, I, I know that person needs to hear the gospel, but I've got to read Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh Heidel, and I've got to read Herman Vavik's Reformed Dogmatics, and I've got, to, I've got to really beef up on things. And that might take 5, 10, 15 years before I'm ready to have that conversation. Malarkey, right? It's not true. It's a lie from Satan. You may not know everything, and guess what? No one does, Right? But what you do have is the testimony of what Jesus Christ has done in your life. How compelling it is to explain in the most simple of terms, here is who I was and here is who I am now by the power of the gospel and Jesus Christ. Guys, it's, it's, it's one of the most powerful things that you have in your, your, your arsenal. Guys, your non-Christian friends don't have any problems telling you their stories. Don't have a problem telling yours. Now, please don't hear what I'm saying. I want to to put a disclaimer on this, okay? Just because you sincerely believe something doesn't make it true. See, in, in our culture, sincerity is the ultimate arbiter of truth, right? If you're sincere about it, then you're good to go. Remember, Paul, as a persecutor, sincerely believed, right, that he was doing the right thing when he was killing Christians, he was just sincerely wrong. So, so, so please understand something. Ultimately, um, your testimony or your experience or story is true and valid to the extent that it's built upon the foundation of truth and of the gospel. So, so, so now understand, your, your, the Christian faith is not less than personal, but it's ultimately based upon a historical set of facts that Jesus Christ came and lived and died and rose again and ascended to the, to the right hand of the Father. But guys, you have truth on your side. And salvation is never less than personal. And Paul understood this. And this is why Paul gives us a, a glimpse into his heart here. When, you know, when Paul says he foreknew, and we, going back to Romans 8, we, we talked about this word. It means to set one's sight and affections on in an intimate, knowledgeable way. It's not that God foreknew Paul, that he knew what Paul was going to do. But listen to the way Paul describes the way God knew him. Galatians 1.15. He who had set me apart before I was born, 
and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Guys, that is sovereign grace. God gets his man, or his woman, or his child, or his spouse. So keep on praying, keep on hoping, endure. All right. Se- second reason that Paul gives for why God has not abandoned the ethnic Jews, his people, is historical. So, so look here in verses 2 through 6. Paul here is going to remind the church in Rome that not only can he speak from personal experience that God has saved him, but in fact that God has been set, uh, faithful to save a remnant of ethnic Jews in every generation. It's not just him. God, God's got a people. God's got Jewish people that he is converting and turning to Christ in every generation, even when we can't see it or even if we don't know about it. And of course, he uses the story from 1 Kings chapter 18. We, we looked at this a few weeks ago. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a story that's sort of exhibit A for Paul's historical point here. Remember the context, right? Elijah is going to do battle with the prophets of Baal. This is an MMA godlike throwdown, right? Between Baal and Yahweh. And Elijah is vastly outnumbered. And we know that there was a spectacular victory. Fire comes down from heaven, consumes the sacrifice. Yahweh is victorious. The prophets of Baal are slaughtered. And here is Elijah thinking, finally, revival's come. Right? Ahab and Jezebel, they're going to invite me in. We're going to talk about religious reforms in the nation of Israel. Um, the, the, the people of Israel are going to turn after, turn back towards God away from their idols. But we know, right, it doesn't happen that way. Jezebel says, I don't care what happened in this battle. Off with his head. It's the lowest point of Elijah's life. In verse 3, a quotation of 1 Kings 18 says, this is, this is Elijah speaking, I'm the last man standing. I'm all alone. Where, where are you, God? Have your purposes failed? And do you, do you hear sort of the, the accusation there? The questioning. And what is God's response? And I'm going to give the, the New Living Paul version. This is my version, okay? Appearances are deceiving. Elijah, verse 5. I, four. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, Elijah, you may think you're alone, you're not alone. You may think that I'm not working, but I'm working. I've raised up 7,000 people. Um, You don't even know who they are. I've got one over here in the court of Ahab. I've I've got this prophet in training you haven't even met yet, named Elisha. I've I've got people here, I've got people there, People, you have no idea if, if you're only walking by sight and not by faith, then you're not going to perceive what I'm doing. Guys, here's what I find interesting. With only a very few exceptions, do you realize Elijah never got to see most of the remnant? It was only promised to him by God. And God says, Elijah, what I'm doing in your heart, I'm doing in the heart of my chosen, my elect, my people. Two things we want to take from this. First, as it relates to the Jewish people specifically, ethnic Jews, God is still raising up a remnant. 
In other words, there are Jewish people who trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They, they, they may not be always visible to us, but they were always among us. Guys, just, just part of the Four Oaks story, one of our elders at the East Congregation, Yaakov Petcher, who continues to battle um, cancer, by the way, you continue to pray for him. Um, Yaakov is a Jewish Christian. He's a, he's a part of the remnant, and he is one of our spiritual leaders. He's been fully enveloped into the people of God. Guys, right here at Killarn, Rick Feldman, the master of all things woodworking, and if you want him to make you something, he, just, he might build you a house. I don't know. Just ask him, okay? He was, what was, what is Rick? He was born a Jewish boy in a Jewish family in Brooklyn. And if you don't believe that, ask him to talk and you'll recognize the accent, all right? God opened his eyes to see that all the things that he was taught growing up, all the Jewish signs, the symbols, the rituals, the ceremonies, were actually pointing to and fulfilled in Christ. Now, preview of the next couple of weeks. Paul is going to go on and tell us in a couple of weeks that there is one day going to be a massive influx of ethnic Jews that are going to join the remnant and the church, and that, and that we can look forward expectantly to that day. We may, we may or may not ever see it in our life. We don't know. But understand, it's not going to be because of the works they did, or the sacrifices they make, or the temple they rebuilt, or the journey they made to Jerusalem. It's going to be because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That, that is, that's an amazing thing, that one day there is going to be a, mathnic, a massive ethnic Jewish conversion where there's going to be this influx of Jewish Christians into the church, and we're going to be getting there in the next couple of weeks. A second thing to take from this passage before we move on. It has to do with this idea of remnant. Look at verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. I want you to know this. Not only does is God raising up a remnant of Jewish Christians, God is always raising up a remnant of his people, Jew and Gentile. You see, in our culture, it could be very tempting and deceptively so to think we're all alone. The walls are pressing in. Pastor Paul, don't you see what's happening with the government? Don't you see what's happening with the culture? Don't you see what's happening to, to the institutions that we've come to know and trust for so long, and they're, they're fading away? And what is, what is God's promise to us? You're not alone. I am raising up my people. We may not see it in the West, but in South America, in Africa, in Asia, the gospel is growing and expanding. It is transforming. But God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten us. Jesus has made a promise. I will build my church. The gates of hell, he says, will not prevail against it. And the analogy there is not that Jesus and the church are the gates and we're trying to keep the world out. That's not, that's not the picture. The picture is that the world is behind the gate, and that the gospel is advancing. The gospel is conquering. The, the gates of hell cannot stand up against the good news of Jesus Christ, so trust in me. 
So Paul here, we've seen, has appealed to the personal. He's appealed to the historical. But now he's going to appeal to the foundational piece of both of these, and that's the theological. Look at verse 7. Paul says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now, what does that mean? That's what we're asking here. Who were the elect? Who were the hardened? Well, the elect, and we've seen this throughout the book of Romans, the elect are those whom God chooses to save from every generation. Those whom foreknows, this is his remnant. Um, these are the people that he has set upon his mercy, not people that were seeking after him first, but God sought them first. This is love. Christ loved us. Those are the elect. Okay? That's not where Paul wants to focus this next piece of the, of the discussion. He wants to focus on the hardened. And he's going to quote three Old Testament passages to to talk about this, to talk about this theological reality that's at work. And the first quotation is kind of a mashup from Deuteronomy and Isaiah, and it describes God's judgment. Let, let, let's look at it here in verse 8. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Now, a quick interpretive lesson, right? And, and, and I learned this from John Piper. I think this is really good. If you ever have a question about something that one of the scripture writers says in one part of their book or letter, before you go looking in other parts of the Bible to see what, the, what other scripture writers say, which we should do, by the way, look first in that book to see if, hmm, has that author mentioned this idea before, this idea of hardening or this idea of people having a, a heart of stone and being sort of in a spiritual stupor. And in fact, going all the way back, Paul does talk about this in Romans chapter 1. Now, I want you to listen to this quotation, then I want to talk, tell you how these relate. Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So you got that? They've hardened their hearts against God. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Here, here's the picture Paul's giving us. The gospel, the good news, the call to faith and repentance has gone out to the nations, has gone out to the people. But sinful hearts have resisted that call. Hearts, people have hardened their hearts. Guys, it's, it's, we underestimate the transformation and the call and the sacrifice that's required of the gospel sometimes, it's life-shattering. It's life-altering. Some things in your life will get better when you embrace Christ. A lot of things in your life, earthly speaking, humanly speaking, will get worse. And so people 
don't want to hear what they don't want to hear. And they harden their hearts and they give themselves over to their lusts. And that's what Paul's describing. But then something else happens. Look at verse 24. It says, God gives them up. In other words, God stops pursuing. God releases. God leaves people alone in their blindness, their spirit of stupor, their deafness. They are hardened all the more. This is called, by the way, theologians call this a judicial hardening. It means the hardening is a just act by God. God's, God's not just flying around the world looking for people to harden here and there willy-nilly. He's not doing well. I'm going to harden him. That's not the picture here. That's not the idea of what Paul is talking about. What he's saying is that this is what happened to Israel. They were his chosen people, and God called them all the time, continually, through his grace. It was grace and grace and mercy and mercy. They hardened their hearts, and finally God said, I'm going to release you. I'm going to give them up. And guys, don't think for a moment that this is just a Paul thing. Jesus said much the same thing. Jesus said, the reason I'm telling you parables is because you've rejected my miracles, you've rejected my clear word. Now I'm going to, to talk to, to you in parables that you won't understand because it's a sign of judgment for you. In fact, this, is, I think, is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is speaking about. And, and listen, church, this, he's addressing this to Christians. Okay, Hebrews 3. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's try not to make this too complicated, church. When you hear the call of God today, don't harden your heart. See, sometimes... There might be some of you who have been raised in the church your whole life. You've heard the gospel, you've been presented the truth, and you sort of have steeled yourself against it. Well, that, that's something, Pastor Paul, I can get to at some point later in my life. That's something that I can sort of postpone. You see, I've got the things to do, decisions to make. In other words, I've got things that... that ways that I want to run my life and control my life. And to yield to the gospel call now, there'll be a cost. There'll be a claim that's made. And what Hebrews describes, what Psalm 69 describes, what Romans 11 describes is that awful, terrible process where won't respond is transformed into can't respond. And that's what Paul is talking about has happened to the Jewish people. Now, the second question, quotation, in verse 11, comes from Psalm 69. Okay, let's look at that. Verse 9, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So, obviously, this is a picture, and we see it all the time in the Old Testament. The picture of God's relationship with his people is is pictured as a banquet, as a feast, as God inviting his people in, right, to be with him, commune with him, to fellowship with him. But somehow, he says, this feast 
which is supposed to be full of delicacies and um, rich food and wine and celebratory spirit, somehow this food has become rotten. Somehow this food has turned to gravel. It's molded. It's poison. It's become a snare. So it's 22 years later, but the Gilbert family is still watching the reality show Survivor, okay, and very proud of it, okay? We're up to season 43. And every season, what happens is that these poor contestants are put on these starvation diets where they end up losing 25 to 30 pounds. I would love to be a contestant on Survivor so I didn't have to go to premiere every day, right? Okay. But what they give them are these reward challenges where these starving people compete, and sometimes the winners of these challenges, they get to eat a feast. And usually the feast is provided by the corporate sponsor of that day. This feast is provided by Applebee's or Outback, right? And invariably, two things happen. One, these people gorge themselves, right? They feast. They've got the blooming onion coming out of their ear. I mean, they are, they are, they are cramming it in. And it, they're, they're just gloriously passed out. They've eaten so much. But the second thing that invariably happens is about 2 a.m., the cameraman comes into the camp, and he shows what's happening to these people at 2 a.m. You want me to describe it to you? Okay. It's coming out of both ends. That's as far as I will go with it, okay? The thing that they so looked forward to, the thing they thought was going to bring satisfaction and fulfillment and nourishment has what? It's become a snare. It's become poison. It's become mold. It's, it's destroying them. Guys, that's what David is talking about. See, from a human perspective, there are certain things in our life that we say, if I just had that, it would fix everything. If, if things were different in my marriage or if things were different with my kids or my job or my career or the college I'm going to go to, um, if, if I just... If God just gave me this, that, or the other, and by the way, we all have those things rattling around in our minds this morning. I don't ask you if you do, but it's what, it, what is it for you? We, we all have that thing. If I just had that, my problems would be solved. And here's how they become a snare, though. They never come through, do they? They always fail. They always disappoint they never quite satisfy. See, our, our spouse dies one month before retiring. Or I think this is going to be a great season in my life and I get that diagnosis. My, my, my dreams, my vocational dreams have been crushed. Relationships have been broken. And if we're not careful, if we've made those things into an idol, they become stumbling blocks. The very feast, and guys, all those things, by the way, are good gifts of God. But when we seek those things above God instead of seeking his kingdom first, they become a snare for us. Let me just ask you a question, Four Oaks. What's on your table this morning? What, 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 what? What delicacies are you looking at just saying, if I could get my hands on that, then all my problems would be solved? What's the one thing, if God were to take off your table, you would feel a sense of hopelessness? You would feel a sense of, of incurable loss? That's the thing God wants to do a work of grace in for your heart. 
Church, God has a better table for you. And all throughout the Bible, this table, the delicacies that God lays out for us, are always described as the word of God itself. Guys, Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found, and I love this, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. Do you see now why Jesus said, stood up in the synagogue at Capernaum and said, I am the bread of life. See, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. I'm, I'm the logos. I'm, I'm the word. I've given you the words of life. Come to me. You will never hunger. What does he do? He stands up in the temple. I'm the living water. He who drinks from me will never thirst. Guys, the delicacies that God offers us on his table this morning is Jesus Christ himself. I love this quote by Justin Dieter, not Justin Bieber, but Justin Dieter. Here it is. Justin Bieber needs it too. We all do. For the Christian, Jesus provides a banquet of truth for our nourishment and strength. Every day, we need spiritual food to strengthen us to faithfully follow Jesus as we abide in him. Jesus said that he is the bread of life. He is the bread from heaven who provides satisfaction in life, and Jesus has given us himself. He has given us his word. Because one of the reasons we end every service by coming to the Lord's table is that we are reminded man does not live by bread alone but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus is the word. Come and trust him. Look to him. God, God's not, God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten his people. Just look in your own life. Look at the faithfulness of God as Paul did. Look at what's happening around you. Look at just historically, has God ever failed to build his church? Has God ever failed to save his people? And look to the future knowing, knowing that God has, is coming back to claim a people for himself, that he is sovereignly working. And in the meantime, he says, wait, be patient, seek me. I am the bread of life. Let's pray.